Well, if you have a Bible, uh, please turn with me to 1 Timothy uh, chapter 3. If you're new with us, what we do is kind of work our way through the text of Scripture verse by verse or section by section. And we are now in uh, 1 Timothy chapter 3. We're going to cover verses 8 through 16. Uh, Immediately after my freshman year in college, I returned home to Dayton, Ohio uh, to start saving money for my sophomore year. And this, of course, a lot of freshmen do return home after their freshman year. And um, I knew that I had a certain dollar amount that I had to make. and And I knew the only real shot at making that dollar amount was either to work over the summer in commission sales or to to wait tables at a sort of a higher-end restaurant. And so I, I opted for the latter and I got hired as a server at the um, at the very fancy Mexican restaurant in Dayton called Casa Lupita. And uh, one of the things that set our restaurant apart is that the servers were not permitted to write anything down. And so um, as I would go and, and take orders, even at a table of four or six or ten or whatever it was, I had to remember the order. I couldn't write anything down. It was kind of a way that we set ourselves apart as a restaurant. Well, not only were there, you know, seemingly hundreds of items on the menu, but each item could be ordered with either chicken, beef, or pork. So there are all kinds of uh, items on the menu. So a person, I wouldn't just have to remember that a person wanted a chimichanga, for example, which I sold a lot of those, but I have to remember whether it was a beef, chicken, or pork chimichanga. So there was a lot a lot to recall as I waited tables there. And because of my uh, penchant for being distracted rather easily, um, there were a lot of people who got items they never ordered, uh, items they never wanted, and in a few cases, just a few, items that they were allergic to. And I have some stories about that, but they're for another time. Um, I learned, though, when I was working in this restaurant, I learned a new phrase that I'd never heard before. And that is if a, if a, if a server was really uh, behind and, and uh, had multiple tables that needed drinks or food or whatever it is, he or she would say, I'm in the weeds. I'm in the weeds. Uh, will you help me? If you've worked in a restaurant, you've undoubtedly heard this. Uh, it was the first time I'd ever heard that phrase. Well, 2,000 years ago, roughly, the apostles of Jesus Christ found themselves in the weeds, so to speak. Uh, the church was growing so fast. It was growing like crazy. In fact, in fact, Acts 2 tells us that every single day, people were being added to the fold. So people were, were being added to the fellowship. The church was growing exponentially. And the disciples realized, the original 12 realized, that they were unable to care for all of the needs of those who were being converted. Uh, particularly... The elderly, there were widows who uh, were, were believers. They were not being given what they needed actually to survive. And so under the prompting of the Holy Spirit, uh, the disciples said in Acts chapter, two, uh, chapter 6 verse 2, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. So what was their solution? They they have people coming to faith. They're unable to provide for the real, tangible, physical needs of the people. They say, well, what we need to do is we're going to ask the the, the people, the congregation, the members, we might say, if we're to sort of make it current, to set forth before us, to, to bring before us men of good reputations that we will, in fact, appoint as servants, as deacons in the church. That was their solution on how they might care for the physical needs that had arisen. Uh, These were, again, these were the first deacons in the church. The word, uh, the Greek word for deacon, diakonos, it means server. And the the verb form of that, diakoneo, means to serve. 
While the pastors and elders devoted themselves to the ministry of the word and to shepherding the flock, the deacons served the congregation by taking care, again, of whatever physical needs came up. So we're in the ninth week of our study in 1 Timothy, and we're, we're trying to understand this letter uh, by Paul to Timothy, uh, who was ministering to the church at Ephesus. We're in the ninth week, and, and again, we're, we're, we want to look at the literary context, what type of literature it is, look at the cultural context, the historical context. And this morning, we're going to look at the qualifications of a deacon. In other words, those who would serve the church... Uh, what are they supposed to be like and, and how are they supposed to serve? And then we're going to move on beyond that. And it's going to be certainly, hopefully, a, uh, a look at the scriptures, a message that's, that's relevant, not just for those who are aspiring to this uh, role of deacon. So uh, let me begin by reading uh, 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 8 through 10. Uh, the text reads like this. Uh, Deacons, likewise, must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience and let them also be tested first and then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. So Paul begins this section by saying deacons likewise. In other words, he's drawing out the similarities between the elder qualifications that we looked at last week and the qualifications for a deacon. And some of the qualifications, as we're going to see, are actually very similar. Um, they, they're all, in fact, some of the wording is almost the exact same. For example, uh, the phrase dignified that we see right away must be dignified. Deacons must be dignified. It's uh, similar, very similar to the elder qualification of respectable. Uh, like elders, deacons are to be people of high, the highest integrity. Not perfect, of course, but they're supposed to be people of high integrity that are recognized as such by those in the congregation. Not double-tongued. In other words, they don't say one thing to one person and then walk away and say something different, perhaps even something opposite to another person. They're not addicted to much wine. This resembles the elder characteristic, not a drunkard. If a deacon enjoys alcohol, he must consume it in moderation. Not greedy for dishonest gain. That is similar to the elder qualification, not a lover of money. This is not what motivates the deacon. This is not what he wakes up in the morning thinking about, how can I make more money? But in fact, how can I serve the church? So not, again, not greedy for dishonest gain. As we'll see in a moment, there are, there are some differences. There's some differences between these two lists. Uh, and that's because the, the elders and deacons have very different roles. The elders commissioned with the task of leading the church. Well, here's, here's an example of this. Nowhere is a deacon in this list required to be able to teach like an elder is. But the deacon must, verse 9, hold the mystery of faith with a clear conscience. This is just as much about how a person lives as what he believes. And that's because the deacon must believe the gospel so deeply it must, he must be resting in the, the gospel so deeply that it penetrates his soul and informs his actions. That is to say, what a deacon does is consistent with, it gives credence to uh, what he says he believes. Uh, next, we're told that a deacon must be tested. They must prove themselves blameless. The word blameless there is akin to the elder qualification above reproach. 
again, and, and I have to say this as a person who has served as an elder in, in multiple churches and will be an elder here, it doesn't mean that an elder must be perfect because if that were the case, no one can serve as an elder. This doesn't mean by the word blameless that a deacon must be perfect. Otherwise, no one could ever serve as a deacon. Simply means that this person is known by their humble obedience to Jesus Christ. That's how they're known. They're characterized by humility. They're characterized by repentance. They're characterized by obedience to Christ. That's how they're known to be blameless. And so they're recognized as such within uh, the church. And the testing of the person, given the, the way this list unfolds, is primarily one of the testing of character. Now, certainly there's wisdom in, in testing one's theology, but this is primarily about one's character. And the question is, is their reputation, that is to say, the way they're serving the church, their pattern of serving the church, does it confirm, you know, does it bear witness to what they say they believe? Then we get to verse 11. Let me read verses 11 and 12. Their wives, likewise, must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. Now, if you, I don't know, I'm preaching from the ESV. It's what I've preached for the last maybe 10 or 12 years. And if you have, uh, you may have a version of the Bible, you probably do, that has a footnote that says, uh, a little number that says, after wives, um, wives likewise, and then a footnote. And that's because that word translated wives, gunikos, can actually be translated women. And maybe if you'll scan down, and you don't have to do it right now, but if you look at your footnotes, you'll see that it may say also women likewise. So what this means is um, th this, this reference could be to the wives of deacons, which is the way that I just read it, or it could be a reference to women deacons or deaconesses. Um, and, you know, the words, they're good arguments for both wives and for women. And it probably doesn't serve this discussion necessarily well to get into all the different reasons. But I will say this, which I think is, is an interesting thing to consider. And I'm going to throw out some tension that I won't resolve. But it, it is interesting to me that, that if Paul is indeed talking about wives, why would he provide qualifications for deacons' wives, but not elders' wives. We, did the, we looked at the elders' list last week. There's nothing about elders' wives. There's no, there's no list of qualifications. If he's indeed talking about the wives of deacons, why would he have neglected to spell out the qualifications of an elder's wife? But here, Capshaw, we've interpreted as wives of deacons, which I think is responsible and fair and, and, and you know, a fine way to go about it, which means that we will insist, we insist that deacons' wives must be these things, self-controlled. They must be honorable women who refrain from gossiping or verbally cutting down others, but are instead examples for other women to follow. Next, deacons are called to be the husband of one wife, managing their own households well. Now this, this again echoes the elder list. A deacon is also called to be a one-woman man. This is that idiom. This is what that refers to, a one-woman man. That is to say, in his current status in life, which is what Paul's referring to, his eyes, his heart, his mind, they're all clearly and evidently on his wife alone. In fact, uh, Brian Chappell explains it very succinctly, better than I can. He says this, 
No other woman can have his affections maritally, mentally, or emotionally. His wife must occupy his full horizon. That is to say, for the deacon, he is known to be a man who is devoted to his wife. He's not making lewd comments. He's not, he's not making sexual innuendos. He's not looking at other women in a way that creeps them out. So he's, he's a one-woman man, and he's known to be that. He is devoted to his wife. This is a, a, a yet another qualification that mirrors that of the elder. And he must lead his family well. So, so making disciples starts at home. Our, our mission as a church is to make disciples of Jesus Christ who make other disciples for God's glory and the joy of all peoples. Well, we don't just go elsewhere and make disciples. Sometimes, you know, we think, well, you know, I got to go cross, I got to cross country. I got to go internationally to make disciples. That's really where the disciple making takes place. No, disciple making starts in the home. That's where it starts. That, that's, that's, the, that's where it begins as, as we shepherd the hearts of our own children, leading them to see the beauty and the glory and the majesty of God. Now notice that Paul does not say, as he did with elders, if a man cannot manage his own household, how else will he look after God's church? That's because, again, deacons are not given a ruling or leading position. That function belongs to the elders. The deacons are the ones who serve the church. So, let me break it down here in the way that I've, uh, similar to the way I have done with elders. We said that elders, I broke down the, the uh, responsibilities in four categories. Know, lead, feed, and protect. So he said, if we're to summarize what an elder does, an elder knows the flock, leads the flock, uh, feeds the flock, that is, teaches the scriptures uh, with a view of taking people to Christ and protects the flock. If we were to create a similar list for deacons, it would be like this. The deacon cares for the flock. Um, the deacon administers, which means some logistic things, uh, means organizing. And, and, and you see a lot of ways that our deacons serve that are kind of behind the scene, whether it's locking up the doors of the church after, you know, on Sunday afternoon or helping to, to uh, dispense with the elements and so on. Uh, the deacon nurtures. This is a nurturing role. And the deacon provides uh, in the church. So pr helping to, to again, to, to disseminate, to administer those, uh, the, the financial and other resources in a way that cares for and serves the family. So let me say it this way. This is our, our first point. We, we won't take so long to get to the other two. One of the gracious ways that God provides for his own is through the ministry of humble and qualified servants. Those are deacons. This is one of the gracious ways that God provides for his own. Now, I made this point when we were looking at elders. I said one of the gracious ways that God protects his own is through elders. So I wanted to make, say it in a similar way that one of the ways, the gracious ways that God provides for his own is through deacons. Now, sometimes, as we've talked about, sometimes God provides immediately and supernaturally, right? In fact, we, maybe you have a story We've all heard stories of someone, they had a bill to pay, and it was $158.17, and somehow, some mysterious way, uh, that they just, someone provide, something was provided for him, they came across the money, it was a rebate, or it appeared in their bank account, whatever it was, and it was the exact same amount of money. I mean, sometimes God works that way. Sometimes God works supernaturally to provide for us in a way that we can't even explain with our human faculties, right? Um, I was talking to a couple this week, and, and the lady was saying, over the last couple of months, we've seen God work in a way, we've had front row seats to seeing God do the miraculous in a way that I don't think we've even seen before. 
Sometimes God provides for his own in incredible, miraculous ways. But most of the time, God provides for his own by means, through means. And the deacons are are one of the gracious means by which God cares for, watches over, provides for his own people. Now, look at verse 13. For those who serve well, again, they're summarizing the role of a deacon, serving well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. The deacons who serve well get a twofold reward. Um, they gain good standing for themselves. This is, the, this is the horizontal benefit, so to speak. The people in the church, they recognize them as servants and they honor them as servants. They respect them. So they gain influence in, in a healthy way in the church. And this is the way that it is, by the way, here at Capture. I've, been, I've had lunch with several deacons. I've been in deacons meetings. I've been in the homes of deacons. And, and, and these are men who are worthy of respect. They are rightly respected. I know that you respect them. They serve this church very, very well. I mean, I'm, I'm so grateful for the work of our deacons. They're outstanding. And so they, the, the horizontal benefit of that that Paul's talking about here is they then gain the respect of the believing community. Now, there's another aspect of this that, that Paul brings uh, to us, and that is um, there's a vertical benefit. They also great, gain great confidence in their own faith. They don't gain a good standing with God because they serve as deacons. It's not as though God says, you know, you were, you were kind of on the lowest rung. You were way in the distant, you're going to be way in the distant crowds when it came to heaven, but now you serve as a deacon, I'm going to move you up a few rows. That's not what Paul's talking about. What he's saying is they, they gain great confidence in their own faith by giving themselves to others, by imitating the sacrifice of Jesus and seeing from the front row God provide again and again and again, their faith is strengthened. This is what Paul means. By the way, if you're interested in what our deacons do, and you want to learn a little bit more about this transition that we're going through as a church from a, we're moving to an elder-led model, which we've talked about for a long time. But if you want to know what our deacons do specifically and the difference between deacons and elders, we'll have another Q&A this Wednesday night at 630. So uh, you're more than welcome to to join us. That's for for, uh, all the church if you want to come out for that. Now, why is it so important though that God would spell out these roles with such clarity? I mean, why, why does it really matter that much? Well, the church, when loving and serving the way that God has designed, actually gives the world a window into God's love. Look at verses 14 and 15. Paul makes a bit of a transition here as he uh, does so often in his letters. He says, I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. I want to pause there. We don't know uh, where Paul was exactly at this time. He's somewhere in Macedonia, which is this huge region. So he's really nowhere close to Ephesus at this point. Um, And the two, Timothy and Paul, were separated by the Aegean Sea. So even if he wanted to get there, it wasn't a quick sort of jaunt. It would take a while to get there. He doesn't know if he's going to be able to make it back to, uh, to Ephesus and to see Timothy. But he wants Timothy to know that And the church, you know, there's a certain way that people ought to behave. There's a certain way people ought to live who are part of the church, which is the household of God. If you've been a Christian for more than a week or two, you've undoubtedly heard and you know that the church is not a building, right? So 
if something happened to this beautiful building, if it uh, burned down, you know, heaven forbid, the, the church, Capshaw Baptist would still exist in its entirety. The church would still exist. This is simply a place that we, the church, meet, right? So, so the church, church is not a place we go. It's not a building that we sit in. Uh, the church is, in fact, who we are, right? It's, it's, it's an identity. It's, it's who we are. It's a group of people, and the Bible uses a number of metaphors to describe that group of people from a building, a body. Here, Paul says that we are the household of God. In other words, we're a family. The church is first family. A few years after my parents were divorced, I went back to see my father at Christmas time, about 300 miles from where we lived, and, and I remember him, we were sitting down, and I'll never forget this. There's some of those things that are just kind of etched in your memory. And I remember my father, um, and he was kind of, he didn't have a job at the time, all over the place, and uh, very anti-establishment, anti-government, anti-everything. But I remember him putting his hands on my face, and I almost, I could almost feel it even, put his hands on my face, and he said, don't ever call another man dad. Now, it was perhaps a selfish request, but to my dad, he would always, he had always, you know, these sayings that, you know, blood is thicker than water, and, 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 all, and those sorts of things, even though you know, he had abandoned us, us. He still had this sort of value that he considered family as sort of the highest thing. But Paul actually says that the church is the household of God. That as believers, we are sons and daughters of God. We are siblings, Christian siblings of one another in a way that actually, in a way that actually trumps our unbelieving biological family. So we're brothers and sisters in Christ the household of God. Paul says the church is the truest form of family. And then he says, Paul says that we are a pillar and buttress of the truth. Pillars uh, are what hold up the roof. And buttresses are what secure the pillars. We talked, uh, we looked at the, I think I showed a picture a few weeks ago of the, the temple of Artemis, the temple of Diana there in first century Ephesus. And you saw there are a hundred round pillars that hold this incredible roof up in the, in the air, directing attention to the glory of Artemis or Diana. Well, if pillars and buttresses in a physical building serve to hold up the roof, setting it apart from other buildings, then what does the church do if it is the pillar and buttress of the truth? Well, it holds high the truth, which is the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what the church does. Uh, John Stott says it this way, the purpose of pillars is to, is not only to hold the roof firm, but to thrust it high so that it can be clearly seen even from a distance. Just so the church holds the truth aloft so that it is seen and admired from the world. Simply put, the church displays, the church elevates and shines a light on the pure gospel of Jesus Christ. And I'll make it very practical. As we, as brothers and sisters in Christ, we as siblings love each other and forgive each other and serve each other and, and uh, give ourselves to each other, we then give a watching world a picture of the sort of sacrifice that Christ has displayed for us. Here, here's a second point. Our obedience to Christ's commands serves as a witness to the power of God and the gospel. 
Our obedience to Christ's command serves as a witness to the power of God and the gospel. Now, clearly there are plenty of reasons to obey God in the scriptures. We see all kinds of reasons. And if we want to boil it down to its most fundamental level, we obey God because he's God and we're not. He's the creator. We are the created. So when God speaks, he speaks with ultimate authority. So there are a lot of reasons that we obey God. But it seems to me that one of the chief reasons in, in the New Testament that Jesus and the apostles continue to give for us obeying God is the credence it gives to the gospel and the power of God. I'll give you a couple of examples. Matthew 5, 16, Jesus says, let your light shine before others so they may see your good works and give glory to your father who is in heaven. Our obedience pointing to the goodness and glory of God. The apostle Peter says this, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that they may see your good deeds and what glorify God on the day of visitation. Finally, Paul says, whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. These kind of echo what Paul is saying in 1 Timothy. What Paul is saying is those in the church, when he says those in the church ought to be, behave a certain way, he's saying those who have been bought with a price, those who have been forgiven by grace alone, through faith alone and Christ alone, those who have been made new and indwelled by the Holy Spirit, they ought to live in, a, in such a way that it brings credit to the gospel by which they were saved rather than bringing the gospel into disrepute, which was how the people in Ephesus, many of them were living. By the way that we live, we either showcase the power of the gospel and give evidence of the transforming power of redemption or we discredit the gospel. Now, as I said a couple of weeks ago, because the gospel is news, right, it's an announcement, it can't simply be lived out, right? People say, well, you know, in St. Francis of Assisi, and people don't know if he actually wrote this or not, but preach the gospel and if necessary, use words. Well, that's not really the way it works. You actually have to proclaim, announce, declare the gospel. Um, but that, even saying that, if what we're saying does not match up with the way that we're living, then we do not hold up the truth like pillars, but instead we suffocate the gospel. We serve as a hindrance to it. Now, here's this, where this gets really, really interesting. It's hard to forgive others, isn't it, when, when they've really wronged you? It's hard. It's hard to love people who are very difficult to love. Maybe you have somebody in your mind right now. You have a face in your mind of someone who's very, very hard for you to love. It's hard to obey those difficult commands. So what does Paul do? He doesn't simply give us the reason, but he gives us the motivation, which I think is so rich. He says in verse 16a, great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. Now, a couple of points of clarification here. When we think about mystery, we, we tend to think of something beyond our figuring out, right? You, there's a show, 48 Hours Mystery. So you're watching, you, you, how do I get to the bottom of this? We think about mystery, we think about something we just can't really figure out. If you live in a home with teenagers, you live with a lot of mystery, right? I, I've learned this. Just I, I, several mysteries over the last week. I said to one of my kids, like, we just had this delicious meal. And there's plenty of leftovers. Why are you now eating a bowl of cereal? But this particular child has cereal uh, like eight times a day. So why, why do you need it? I said, to, I said to another one of my children, I said, you know, rather than um, destroying your room, destroying it, and then taking all day to clean it up, why don't you just clean it up as you go along? To me, that's a mystery. Like, why would you, do, you know, just turn it upside down and then spend all day? Why not just clean it up as you go along? 
Um, or here's a mystery that really irked me this week, uh, which I couldn't really solve. I, I, I got, got in the refrigerator and someone had left one, like half of a swig of orange juice rather than just throw, it, throw the carton in the trash can or dump it out. Now, that's a mystery to me because the, the, I go, I want orange juice. There's just enough to make me angry. There's, there's enough there that I can drink, but there's not enough to actually have with breakfast. That was a mystery to me. A mystery that I've, I've always dealt with when it comes to my wife is, why do you want to go to Target if we have nothing that we need to buy? But she likes to go to Target and walk around. I said, to me, that's a mystery. I don't understand that. If I go to Target, I want to have my list. I want to get what's on my list. I want to get out of there as soon as I can. I don't want to walk around, but this is a mystery. See, there are things that in, in, we look at as mystery. And a mystery, in the way that we view it, is things we can't understand or figure out. But in the New Testament way of thinking, a mystery is not something that no one can understand, but instead something that was unknown for a long period of time, but has now been revealed. That's a biblical mystery. They're mysteries that have been previously hidden, but now have been revealed. He calls, and he's talking about here, the mystery of godliness. Here's a a second clarification. When we think about the word godliness, we tend to think about a way of living. And sometimes in the Bible, this is what godliness refers to. But here, it's actually talking about a deposit of information. In other words, the godliness that Paul talks about is the, the, the content of revealed truth, which for a long time was a mystery. It was, it was undisclosed, but now it has been disclosed in God's plan of redemption. And the mystery is the identity of Jesus Christ. That's the mystery. And what follows then is a hymn, a first century hymn that spells out the details of that mystery. Look at verses, uh, the last part of verse 16. 16 says, great indeed we confess is the mystery of godliness. And then he explains what that mystery is. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up to glory. He was manifested in the flesh. This is a reference to the incarnation of Jesus Christ. Jesus set aside all of his divine rights, never ceasing to be God, set aside all of his divine rights, left the perfect confines of heaven to come to the filth of an animal stable, to be beaten, spat upon, rejected, and ultimately crucified. Why? So that we could be forgiven. This is part of the mystery here. Paul goes on to say, he was vindicated in the spirit. This is a reference to the resurrection. The central doctrine of the Christian faith. While this human jury judged him to be a liar and a false teacher, a fraud, by the resurrection, the power of the Spirit, Jesus proved that he was indeed who he said he was. He lived a perfect life of complete righteousness. Next, he was seen by angels. This is an affirmation of the the real bodily resurrection of Jesus. The angels were at the empty tomb telling the disciples that Jesus was no longer there. Why are you looking for him here? He's not here. Don't you remember what he said? He'd been raised from the dead. He was proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world. These statements refer to the period of of the early apostolic history when the news of Jesus' death and resurrection, uh, it was proclaimed throughout the nations of the known world. And finally, he was taken up to glory. This, of course, is an acknowledgement of the ascension of Jesus. Now, what is Paul doing here? This is so important. This is going to be important for us as believers, as parents, as friends, as co-workers. What is is Paul doing? This song of grace, this ancient hymn, which is a summary of the gospel, 
is presented by Paul as the motivation to obey. In other words, Paul says, yeah, here's how you ought to live. I want to tell you how you ought to live. You ought to behave this way if you were part of the church. But now let me tell you, let me give you the motivation for doing so. And the motivation will not come from simply the commands. The motivation will come from being reminded of the grace of God on display in the person of Jesus Christ who came to earth He gave up everything for you. Gave up everything for us. He was brutally killed, but he rose again. He was taken up to glory. Where even now at this moment, he intercedes for us before the Father. So, see, the reason reason gives us the why, but the motivation gives us the how. And here's what Paul is saying as to the how of our obedience. It's our final point this morning. Sustained obedience is spurred on by reminders about the person and work of Jesus, the one in whom the fullness of God's grace dwells. In other words, and this is why I say this is important as parents and so on, law, we talked about this a couple weeks ago, commands, imperative, expectations, all of those things, they can provide motivation for a moment Right? You tell your child, if you touch that hot stove, you're going to burn your hand. That can provide motivation to not touch touch the hot stove. So fears, threats, commands, all these things, they can provide motivation for a moment, but it's never lasting. The only thing that produces sustained obedience is reminders, the explanation of this incredible sacrificial love for us, that God has demonstrated on the cross and continues to demonstrate through the person of Jesus Christ. Now think about this. Think about these statements in the scriptures. Forgive. That's a command. That's an imperative. That's law. What's it followed by? Even as God in Christ has forgiven you. How will a woman forgive her husband who has wronged her in a terrible way, who has betrayed her trust, who has violated her trust. How will she ever forgive? Only by fully recognizing and supernaturally dwelling in the forgiveness that she has received by God in Christ. Think about this one. Beloved love. That's a command. We're commanded to love. But how? As you have been loved by God. Serve. How? Philippians 2. In the same manner of Christ, who gave himself for you, who did not consider equality with God something to be held on to. Give. Why do we give? We're commanded to give. Because you've been given everything in Christ. See, constantly, this is what Paul does. He gives a command, but he realizes the commands in themselves will not spur lifelong obedience. Only grace. Only love. See, how does a person behave, so to speak, who realizes how much she is loved? She loves in return, doesn't she? How does a person, what is a person, what happens to a person when he grasps how much he's truly been forgiven? He forgives. What sort of generosity characterizes a person who realizes all that he's been given by God in Christ? It's overflowing. The generosity is overflowing. Our motivation to do hard things will only come as we dwell in God's love for us in Christ, which is captured by Paul in this beautiful hymn or confession. 
It is grace. Being loved when we don't deserve it that stirs our hearts to love. The giving of grace is what motivates people to change. It's the only thing. Love is the only thing that motivates people to change at the heart level. Beyond conformity, beyond compliance, but actually a heart level. And I have so many favorite illustrations of this and, uh, and stories I love to tell. Let me just tell you one. I shared this with our staff this week. I was last year, October of 2017, I was preaching in South Africa. And on one Sunday, I preached in, this, in, in an urban setting, in fact, in Pretoria, which is a big city. And then I, I got in a car and I rushed to preach at a very rural setting, a rural village out in the middle of nowhere in South Africa. And I'm in this village and uh, just had preached and was walking around with the, the village host. And, we're, and this, is, this is a place that's so, so remote that it had just been overrun by elephants only uh, a few weeks before. So this is way out in the, the bush. So I'm walking with the, my, the host and he shows me this beautiful garden. I mean, it's just stunning. This is in, this is in the heat of, of South Africa. There's this beautiful garden. And he says to me, uh, he, said, you, he said, if I were to show, would have shown you this garden only a year and a half ago, you wouldn't believe it. It was nothing. It was, it was a wasteland. It was dirt. It was hard soil with nothing on it. I said, what, what happened? He said, well, about a year and a half ago, the, the, village, the leader of the village, the village administrator had said to every single person in the village, you must take a time slot. Every single person must work the garden. And it was mandated. It was legislated. Every person had a time slot. He said the, the garden went to complete waste. Nobody did it. Despite their commands, despite the fear, the threat of punishment, nobody cultivated this garden. Nobody cared about it. But then he said, now he didn't understand anything about gospel, grace, law, gospel, anything like that. But he said, we decided to take a different approach. What we said was, we're going to provide you with all the materials we're going to provide you with the tools. We're going to provide you with, with the seeds, with everything you need. And it's just yours. This is, we're giving this to you. You know, you, you don't, they didn't say this. You don't deserve it because you haven't taken care of it all. But we're going to give this to you and we're going to provide everything you need to cultivate this garden. And what happened was this garden, every, people couldn't wait to take part in this. They started taking turns. They, they started taking shifts and they were pouring their, their, their energy and their hard work into this garden. And I was looking at the finished product. It's beautiful. What happens is grace stirs the heart to obey. Love engenders love. It's God's generosity that compels us to give to others. It's God's kindness, Paul says, that moves us to repentance. Law while it's good, the commands, while they're good, they cannot produce what they demand. Something else is needed. And that's grace. This is why Paul says, live this way. But let me tell you, I'm going to tell you what you should do. But let me tell you about what Jesus did for you. The, the great mystery of grace. Now, what does this mean for us now? Well, if we're not just to behave the way that we ought but honor God's with our hearts as well by growing in obedience, mortifying the flesh, all of those things we're called to do. It won't be by an obsession with our own performance. It won't simply be by remembering the commands. It'll be instead by a preoccupation with God's love for us in Christ, namely with a preoccupation with the gospel. I was counseling a family five or six years ago, and, and they were having some difficulty with their 19-year-old son. 
he was being disrespectful and he was caught up in sexual sin. And, and the mother said to me, you know what I've done is everywhere I know that he'll go, bathroom, bedroom, closet, dining room, I'm putting little sticky notes with the commands of God. Thou shalt not lust. Thou shalt not do this. Don't do this. Don't do that. I said, take all those down. I mean, that, that, those, those commands are good. Why not remind him of the love of God? Why not remind him of the sacrifice that God went through in order to redeem him, in order to, to welcome him into his family? Why not remind him constantly of this incredible grace and mercy of God? And she listened to me. She took all those post-its down. She started putting places, uh, you know, because of his great love for us, because of his great mercy, because of his kindness, God did such and such. You were this, but God, but God. And she said she noticed a softening. Rather than this sort of recalcitrance, this I'm going to go my own way, she noticed a brokenness. Uh, Jerry Bridges sum summarizes it this way. We are brought into God's kingdom by grace. We are sanctified by grace. We receive both temporal and spiritual blessings by grace. We are motivated to obedience by grace. We, we receive the strength to endure trials by grace. And finally, we are glorified by grace. The entire Christian life is lived under the reign of grace. The more that we get to know that, the more that we revel in, the more, as Tim Keller says, we let the love of God wash over us, the more our hearts will be stirred to obey him. Now we're going to see here in just a moment, we're going to see someone who has been so, a couple of people who have been so gripped by the grace of God that they've said, I, I want to publicly declare my allegiance to Jesus Christ. I want to show the whole world. I want to show my church family. I want to identify with Jesus Christ in his death, his burial, and resurrection. What we need and what we're going to see by these testimonies, these very tangible demonstrations, we need to revel in Christ's completed work for us. He lived so that we could have life to the fullest. He died so that we could be reconciled to God. He rose again for our justification. He is alive even now. He's alive even now, interceding for us at the Father's right hand. And what we need to do is believe that. But that takes the power of God to believe. And if you're here this morning and you've made a profession of faith, but you've never been baptized, think about this. God's called, God has done everything for you. He loves you. He cares for you. He has brought you into his family. He has provided a place for you at his table. Why not follow through in the step of obedience? Maybe you're here this morning and, and, and you've made a profession of faith. Maybe you've been in church for years, maybe decades. Maybe you've been in church for 50 years. But the Holy Spirit's working in your heart in such a way this morning that you realize, I've actually been trusting in my own works. I've actually been putting my confidence in my own ability. And God's calling you to repent. May God give us the grace to truly believe the beauty and sufficiency of the gospel. Let's pray.